Let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans 14. Romans 14. Again, if you need a, an updated copy of the sermon schedule, you can go on our website. If uh, you can't get it from there or you'd like an easier way, just let me know. I can uh, email it to you or, or get it to you some other way. But this, evening, or this morning we'll be um, finishing up chapter 14 and then starting into chapter 15 next week. If we believers are going to live in the context of the same local church, working together in the unity of the Spirit towards one common goal of corporate holiness, then each of us must do what is necessary for the strengthening of the body. And one of the great services that you and I can do for this church is actually to restrain ourselves from engaging in our own personal convictions, things that we know to be right, restraining ourselves from doing those things if they would harm the faith of another believer. Last time we saw that we must not despise or look with contempt on the brother who is restricted in his freedoms. We should not look down on them, despise them, and they should not judge us just because we have different convictions or Ideas with regard to disputable matters, it does not mean that we should despise them or judge them. This time, we're going to see that that we must take it one step further. It doesn't stop. Our love for one another doesn't stop by just not judging them or not despising them. but, But actually, our love includes restraining ourselves from acting upon our convictions for the sake of a weaker brother who would be compelled to sin if we engaged in that thing that we believe in. And so let's uh, look at our text together, beginning in verse 13. This is the Word of God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. A church that is shaped by grace will show brotherly love by living in harmony despite disputed 
differences. If we are going to be shaped by grace, grace marked by and, and led by brotherly love, then we need to live in harmony with one another despite our disputed differences, our personal convictions. Here in, in verse one or verse thirteen, excuse me, uh, Paul gives a summary of what he said so far. So we could take the first part of verse thirteen and see that as a summary of verses one through twelve. Look at verse thirteen with me. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. That's what he was saying in, in ver- the first twelve verses. Don't judge each other. Don't despise one another because of their disputed differences. That's what he said so far. Now he 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 says instead of doing that. Here's the second part. This is what the, the second half of, of chapter 14 is about. Instead, instead, we determine this, not to put an obstacle or stumbling block in a brother's way. All right, I'm stuck. Evan? Oh, there we go. Um, so do not put a stumbling block in a brother's way. The, the, uh, the word there, or the words there, determine this, are literally past judgment. So instead of judging one another, instead or instead pass judgment this way. Instead, use good judgment to do this. And it is to, to not put a stumbling block in your brother's way. What is a stumbling block? Well, physically, it's something that would keep a person from, from continuing on a path without falling. A stumbling block is something that causes someone else to fall physically. Here, Paul has in mind personal liberties with regard to spiritual things. He's saying don't put your personal liberties in the way and use it as a stumbling block that would cause someone else to, to suffer some kind of spiritual ruin. Here's how he says it in 1 Corinthians 8-9. He says, take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. The idea is that we have a liberty as believers to, to engage in certain activities and to think certain ways. But he's saying don't use those liberties in a way that would cause a stumbling uh, for the weak among you. And that's what this whole section is going to be about. That we need to determine in our minds that I am not going to put a stumbling block in the way of another believer. And so if we're going to do this, we need to keep several things in mind. Number one, my brother's sanctification trumps my personal liberty. My brother's sanctification is more important than my personal liberty. Verses 14 and 15. In verse 14, we see the reality of disputable issues. That there, there, there are going to be issues about which we disagree. Verse 14. I, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But... To him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So here he's probably bringing in the idea of the food that he was talking about in the first several verses. He's saying that, that to me, I know that Jesus has allowed us to eat meat. And, and so for me, it's, it's clean. But for someone else, it might be unclean. And, and so there is this reality that in the local church, made up of a number of people with a number of various different backgrounds, and ideas about what is good and right, that there are going to be differences about disputable matters. And, and last time I made the, the, the um, comment that we're talking about disputable matters, we're not talking about things that are essential to the gospel, essential to the faith, things that are clear in the Scriptures. Okay, we're talking about things that, that one person, their conscience doesn't allow them to do it. And another person, their conscience does allow them to do it. 
for Paul, God had granted him the grace to be able to see the truth about eating meat. That he was right. I am convinced in the Lord Jesus, he says in verse 14, that it's okay to eat meat because nothing is unclean in itself. Jesus had made that clear. In Mark 7, he says it's not what goes into your mouth that makes a person unclean. It's what comes out of the heart. And then Mark adds the textual note, and therefore Jesus made all foods clean. And apparently some of the believers here in Rome didn't grasp that concept yet. They hadn't fully understood that Jesus had declared all foods clean. And so Paul is saying in effect, if it were up to me alone, I would eat meat. If I lived on an island, Paul's saying, and my spiritual walk was all about me, and I would know that Christ was okay with it, and I would eat the meat. But I don't live on my own. I live among a community of believers, and so I need to take into consideration their individual consciences. And the reality is that you may have come from the same mindset as the, the weaker believer. That there may have been a time with regard to one of these disputable issues that you used to be on the other side of the fence. And yet, stronger believers were willing to, to withhold, to restrain themselves from engaging in that activity so that they could allow your conscience not to be bothered or to be forced into doing that activity against its will. And you know, God patiently worked with us when we didn't fully understand some of these things and when our consciences wouldn't allow us to do some of these things. And so what Paul understands is that, that he must use the same kind of patience that God used toward him. That he should use that kind of patience toward weaker believers as they work to come to their own convictions. In other words, Paul is saying this, Listen, strong believers, I am on your side with regard to this eating meat issue. But that's not the point. The point is not whether you can express your liberty. The point is your brother's sanctification. That is the point. That shows that you love the body of Christ more than you love yourself. In the second part of verse 14, he, he wants us to understand that what is clean for us could be a stumbling block for our brother. Look at the second part of verse 14. He says, But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. So even though the Scriptures have declared the foods clean, if a person thinks that they're unclean, so even if his conscience is wrong, if it's mistaken, then to him it actually is unclean. And you might be thinking, well, wait a second. Aren't the weaker brothers rejecting the clear teaching of Scripture since Jesus declared all food clean in Mark 7? I think there's a difference here that we need to, to make. There's a difference between what Jesus allowed and what Jesus commands. Okay, So Christ allowed Jews to eat meat. He, he allowed them to eat all kinds of food after He came, right? But He did not command them to. Do you understand the difference? He didn't say, now that you're a Jew, or, or now that I've come and I've declared all food, foods clean, you must eat meat. He never said that, did he? Instead, he's making an allowance, saying, this is something that you can now do. Because, because I, have a, or, or I have fulfilled the Mosaic law. You're no longer under the Mosaic law. You're under the law of Christ. 
And so he's making a, a distinction here. He's saying you are allowed to do it. He's not commanding them to do it. Now, if he had commanded them to do it, they would be wrong to, 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 to eat only vegetables, right? But Jesus never commanded them to do that. And so the reason that, that we must follow our convictions and why following our convictions are so important, our conscience, is that a person who engages in something that is against their conscience, even if their conscience is mistaken or misinformed, they cannot thank God for it. Have you ever considered this? That if you, your conscience is telling you that is a sin against God, and then you go and do it, you can't thank God for that, can you? You can't do that in faith. That's why he's going to say in verse 23, whatever's not done in faith or with conviction according to your conscience, it's sin. And so here's, here's the reality. Our consciences are all in different places. We all don't have the same convictions. Now, we have a lot of the same. We have a lot of similar convictions, but we don't all have the same convictions. And so if my conscience tells me I cannot do that, for me to go against it would be sin. I cannot thank God in it. And so what Paul is addressing here is the fact that, that if he engages in this activity in front of someone else who thinks that it's wrong, according to his conscience, then it might force them to do something against their conscience. Do you see? And that doesn't, that doesn't um, put at the center, that doesn't prioritize my brother's sanctification. It does not prioritize my sister's sanctification. Instead, it prioritizes my personal liberty, my personal freedom. In verse 15, we see the danger of acting out on the disputed issue. The danger of acting out a disputable issue. Verse 15 says, For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. How silly is it for us to destroy someone, to, to cause spiritual room? Why? For the sake of our food. Because I can do it. I have the ability, I have the, the liberty, the personal freedom to be able to do it. Why would you be willing to destroy your brother? Just so that you can express your personal liberty, something that you know to be right. See, that doesn't take into account our brother. A stumbling block is further described here with two more terms. It's described as hurting our brother and destroying our brother in verse 14. First, to hurt our brother. Don't allow the expression of your liberty to hurt your brother. This probably has the idea, the same idea as causing our brother to stumble, that, that it brings about some kind of spiritual harm. It, it, it sets them back spiritually. And so here's the point. Don't put undue pressure on the weak. They are convinced in their mind that that activity is wrong, and so don't go and do that in front of them and put undue pressure on them that would make them want to do that against their own conscience. Because hurting your brother spiritually is actually an expression of your hatred for him. There's an exchange going on here. If we give up their spiritual stability for the sake of our personal satisfaction, then we have not acted in love. I can do this. I have the right. This is how we talk in America today, right? I have the right to do this. And you know what? We do have the right to engage in certain uh, of our convictions. 
to, to express some of those things. But just because we have the right to do it doesn't mean we should. In fact, we're not doing it in love when we do it. When a weaker brother would, would actually stumble from this, be hurt by it. The second expression in verse 15 to describe the stumbling is to destroy our brother. Now this could mean to, to cause spiritual ruin that, ruin that would lead to eternal death, which is how I think Jesus uses it in Matthew 18 when he's talking about putting a stumbling block in front of these, one of these little ones, someone who comes along and is, um, is, is thinking about following Christ and then turns away because we've, we've put a stumbling block in front of them. But I think more likely he's talking about here a spiritual setback. And the reason that I think that is because here Paul is talking to believers. Look at verse 13. He says, Therefore let us not judge one another. And then at the end of the verse, not to put an obstacle or stumbling block in a brother's way. Do you see how he's talking about not, not unbelievers, people who are going to turn away from God, but actually someone who is a, a member of the household of God, a member of Christ's future kingdom, a brother, a weaker brother, but a brother. And, and we see that throughout the text. In fact, verse 1, um, uh, verse one now accept the one who is weak in faith. Sounds to me like he's talking about a brother. Verse 6, he who observes the day observes it for the Lord. But notice, he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks. And he who does not eat, he does it for the Lord, because he gives thanks to the Lord. So whether you eat or you don't eat, he's saying whether you're strong and you know that eating is okay, eating meat, and, and, or whether you're weak, you're doing it for the Lord. You both can do it for the Lord. The implication there is that these are both believers, aren't they? So when he's talking about destroying our brother here in verse 15, I think he has in mind that we would bring about the kind of damage that would lead our brother, our fellow Christian, to come just short of turning away from his faith. Our choices affect more than just us. The, the way that we express ourselves is going to have an effect on my weaker brother and it could bring about some kind of damage to his spiritual life that would make it hard for him to recover from. And so we, we need to, to guard our actions and our thoughts so that, that we are thinking about our brother. So first, my brother's sanctification trumps my personal liberty. Secondly, God's kingdom trumps my personal liberty. God's kingdom. So my brother's sanctification is more important than my personal liberty. My rights and God's kingdom is more important than my rights. Verses 16 through 18. Verse 16, we see the command about this disputable issue. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing, eating meat, be spoken of as evil. So, in verses 14 and 15, we saw that sanctification trumps liberty. And the command was given to, to not set a stumbling block in front of them. Now the command is restated here in the first part of verse 16. So don't let what is good for you be spoken of as evil. Something as good as eating meat. Don't allow it to be something that's spoken of as evil when taken into consideration by our weaker brother. The reason for the command so that we will make the Lord's priorities our priorities. We should make the Lord's priorities our priorities. Verses 17 and 18. There are three reasons for the command. Not to put a stumbling block in front of your brother. Three reasons why we shouldn't let something that's good be spoken of as evil. 
And the first reason is found in verse 17. It is that the kingdom demands our personal strength, restraint. The kingdom demands our personal restraint. Verse 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Here Paul adds drinking as a potential stumbling block. He has been talking about eating meat. Remember, it was meat that potentially could have been offered to idols. Paul's saying, when I eat, I don't even ask where it's from. I just eat it. Because I know that God makes all things clean. And, and, and yet, here he adds another one, which is drinking. And it was probably not just drinking wine. It was probably a stumbling block for the weak for the same reason that eating meat was a stumbling block. And that is that this wine would have been offered to idols. It would have been sacrificed to idols and then sold in the marketplace and in the aftermarket. It's, it's used for one purpose and then sold in the aftermarket. Paul's saying, you know, when it comes to meat, I can do that. If it's been sacrificed to idol and, and sold in the market, I can, I can buy it and eat it with good conscience. And I can do the same thing with drinking, but other people can't. We all have convictions that we're free to express, but, but let's take a step back and ask the question, how important is it that I act on my personal liberty in relation to the coming kingdom of Christ? I mean, what is the kingdom of Christ about? And the answer is, in verse 17, it's not about eating and drinking. Now, there will be eating and drinking in the kingdom. But that's not what the kingdom is primarily about. Those things are only secondary. The kingdom is primarily about these fruit of the Spirit, righteousness and peace and joy. So the kingdom demands our personal restraint. second reason for this command is that our personal restraint serves Christ. In verse 18, our personal restraint serves Christ. For he who in this way, for he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So, so he's saying that as you do this, as you restrain your liberties for the sake of a weaker brother who has a different conviction, you actually serve Christ. And then thirdly, third reason why we do it is because God is pleased with our personal restraint. In the second part of verse 18. So he who does this, verse 18 is acceptable to God and approved by men. If you make the Lord's priorities to be your priorities, then you serve Christ and you please God. Isn't that what we're all about as Christians? We want to do the things that serve Christ and that please God. And Paul's saying one of the ways in which you can serve Christ and please God is by restraining your personal liberties for the sake of a weaker brother who has a different conviction. God's kingdom trumps my personal liberty. Number three, corporate peace trumps by my personal liberty. Verses 19 through 21. Corporate, corporate peace trumps my personal liberty. When it comes to non-essential biblical issues, okay, and, and understand that phrase there, non-essential biblical issues, corporate peace is king. Corporate peace does not trump everything. Right? Corporate peace, we should not just lay down for corporate peace at all costs. Because if we seek peace at the expense of, let's say, for example, clear biblical doctrine, then we have compromised the faith. So, for example, if half the church thinks that salvation comes by works and the other half thinks that salvation comes by faith, 
and we decide that corporate peace is king. That's the most important thing of all. We, we don't want to have these divisions. So you know what we're going to have to do? We're going to have to compromise the gospel, aren't we? So that's what I'm saying here is corporate peace is not the end all. But when it comes to non-biblical issues, non-essential to the Christian faith, corporate peace is king. When it comes to our personal convictions, the most important thing is my brother's sanctification, God's future kingdom, and our present peace within this body. In verse 19, we see the goal of refraining from disputable liberties. Verse 19, so then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. So if the kingdom is not eating and drinking, right, verse 17, but righteousness and peace and joy, then we should pursue the things that the kingdom makes for, right? We should pursue this peace. That's what he tells us to do here in verse 19. The implication is that the strong believers will listen to Paul and in that sense be more concerned about not only their personal liberties and what they want to express, but, but the personal individual consciences of other people. That my personal comforts, you know, it would be more comfortable for me to just eat meat in front of them, right? That's what I normally do. It would be more comfortable for me to do that. So, so why can't I do that? And the reason is because I'm more concerned about corporate peace. I don't want to bring anything that would lead to strife. Remember, we just read, in, uh, Mike just read in Proverbs 6, right? These th- six things does the Lord hate, and seven are an abomination. And the last one was a, a, a person who spreads strife, right? And one of the ways that we can engage in, in anti-peace, in strife, is by actually expressing one of our liberties without thinking about anyone else. In verses 20 and 21, we see the danger of engaging in disputable liberties. The opposite of pursuing peace, of seeking the peace that the Holy Spirit has established, the opposite of that is creating division. And so if we engage in activity that doesn't take into consideration how it will affect my brother, then we actually create disaster or division damage instead of peace. Verse 20 says, do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. Maybe a silly example might help. Suppose I owned a wrecking ball and had the proper licenses to operate it. Then it would be within my personal freedoms or right to freely swing that within the context of my own space, right? But suppose I drove over to my neighbor's house and started bashing in the side of his house and his garage, causing ruin. My neighbor would say, wait a second, I, I can't live without that house. And I might respond, well, why does that matter to me? Right? I've lived without your house ever since I was born. I don't know what the big deal is. It doesn't matter to me if your house is wrecked or not. Friends, do not destroy your brother for whom Christ died just so that you can do something that you are convinced is right. Some kind of expression of a personal liberty actually might bring damage to a weaker brother. And so if you have a conviction that you in your mind know is right, but it actually could cause a brother to stumble, look at the second part of verse 20. Look how serious this is. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. 
If you have a conviction that you know is right, but it causes a brother to stumble, for you and for them it actually is evil. And so if the enacting of your freedom causes offense to a brother, you have sinned. Now Paul's clear at the first part of the verse that what you're doing is not wrong in and of itself. But when you do it within the context of another believer who has a conscience that disallows that, then you have sinned. Because you haven't taken into consideration their mind and the corporate peace. And so here's a good principle to live by in verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. We must seek corporate peace over personal convictions at all costs. Now, we should not seek corporate peace over doctrinal, clear doctrinal issues. That's not what I'm saying. But over personal convictions. Those are not as important as corporate peace. Finally, verses 22 and 23, we see that convictions are necessary but not to be forced on others. We must have convictions. Other believers must have convictions. We can't go around like, uh, you know, just some Gumby, right? Some spiritual Gumby where we just go, oh, it doesn't matter to me. Whatever, whatever, you know, you want, whatever anybody wants, whatever I want, that's what I do. Okay? No, we, we need to have convictions. Convictions are necessary uh, because our the way that we're wired, we're wired to, to work according to our consciences. So we need to have convictions. But they must not be forced on others. Look at verse 22. The faith which you have, or the conviction which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. So Paul's saying, listen, it's good to develop personal convictions and to live by them in a way that honors God. Paul's not asking the strong to, to believe differently. Okay, Stop thinking that you can eat meat. He doesn't say that. He says, I know it's right to eat meat. Have those convictions. Don't give them up. Okay, instead, he says, you need to behave in such a way that keeps people around you in view. And so maybe we might think about it like driving a car on the freeway. You may have the freedom to change lanes. And if you're in the open road... There's no vehicles around at all. You can change lanes with freedom without even looking in your blind spot. And you would be completely right in doing that. However, if you change lanes in the middle of a busy expressway without the thought of vehicles that are in the next lane, you will cause a wreck. And you've actually done evil and something that you had a freedom to do. So Paul says, have your convictions regarding disputable matters. And hold to them, but keep, keep other people in view as you engage in them. Look at the second part of verse 22. Oh, let's just read all of verse 22. The, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. And then he says, happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. In other words, in his personal conviction. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in his personal conviction. So if you are doing something that your conscience regularly rejects, then, then what's going to happen? Then you're going to feel guilty about it, right? You're not going to be able to give thanks to God. And so, do everything in a way that is in fitting or in keeping with your own conscience so that you are happy. You know, when you follow your conscience, you're happy, 
Right? You, you don't have that sense of guilt like, I know I wasn't supposed to do it, but I did it anyway. Why did I do that? And they come to the next time. I do it again. It's a miserable life to live, isn't it? When we're constantly going against our conscience. So if you want to be happy in your Christian life, have convictions, have good convictions, and then live by them. Verse 23. The demand to act according to your conscience. He who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. If you oppose your conscience, it will result in guilty living. In contrast to verse 22, a happy person who who lives by his convictions, the guilty person is the one who doesn't live by his conviction, who's constantly violating his conscience. And so just as it is bad for a strong believer to go against his conscience, so it is bad for a weak person to go against his. You might think, well, the weak people, they get off scot-free. They don't have to do anything. They just have to, they can kind of just engage in their personal liberties and they never have to think about anything. But Paul's saying, no, every single person has a conscience and every person must live according to that conscience. And so the implication is that we must not do anything that would violate our own personal conscience and that would not cause a weaker brother to feel guilty about not engaging in that activity. And the reason for that is found in the second part of verse 23. And whatever is not from faith, whatever is not from personal conviction, whatever is not according to our own personal conscience is sin. If you do something in disobedience to your own conscience, even if, listen to this, even if your conscience is mistaken, It's sin. Now, again, we're talking about disputable matters or matters of allowance. So let me just throw out a really wild illustration just to try to prove the opposite. Okay? If a Muslim radical has trained his conscience wrongly to believe that all Americans must be murdered, okay, that's his conscience. I must murder whatever American comes into my way. And he goes against that. We say, well, wait a second, that's sin? Is sin if he kills them? Is sin if he goes against his conscience? Well, in that case, he's actually trained his conscience in the wrong way. That's not what we're talking about. Because murder in the Scripture is clearly wrong, right? I mean, murder is one of the Ten Commandments that, that, that is repeated in the, in the New Testament of which we must, um, we must not do. And so in that sense, he would be wrong to to obey his conscience in murdering an American. So let me put it to you this way. No single action that a Christian does is a good one unless, he's, unless he is convinced in his mind that it is justified before God. We cannot do anything in our lives that is good unless we are convinced in our minds that it is right to do. Because to go against our conscience is to, is to sin against God. And so we must not, we must have good convictions. We must not force our convictions on other people. And we must guard ourselves when we engage in those convictions. So let me try to give you some, some principles here to consider that might uh, help to, to clarify what we've looked at today. Number one, personal restraint helps your brother. Personal restraint helps your brother. Your brother's sanctification is more important than your personal liberty. Your actions affect more than just you. Of course, we know that when it comes to our sin. 
that when we sin, it affects more than just us, right? It affects the people who are close to us. The consequences of that sin affect more than just us. Like with David's sin with Bathsheba, you can just think about all the people who were hurt because of David's foolish activity. Right? His sinful, godless activity of, of, of adultery. He, 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 um, there was the consequence of, of him trying to cover it up. And so Uriah died. His own son died. Bathsheba was left with that, with that, um, with all the consequences that came with that. See, David's sin affected more than just him. We understand that when it comes to sin. But have you thought about that your, that you, your expression of your convictions actually affect more than just you? And so I would suggest to you that, that we need to be informed believers who know that we can do great damage to the work of Christ and to the spiritual lives of believers based on how we live. You may have good personal convictions. And you've thought through them and you've thought through implications from the Scripture that have led you to believe in that way. But before you engage in them, you and I need to make sure that we think about how it will affect our brother who's in the next lane spiritually. We don't want to run them off the road. And so don't flaunt your views. I can eat meat. Bacon, 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 right? Verse 22 doesn't mean that you can never talk about it. Okay, so, so we shouldn't just, okay, we have our personal convictions and we'll just kind of stay in our own little area. You stay in your area. We'll kind of just bounce off each other when we have to. It doesn't mean we can't talk about our convictions. The point is we can't force them on people. So, so yes, tell them how you came to your convictions. Tell them how, how you think about this thing before God and why you do it the way that you do. And, and even it's okay to try to convince them. But don't force them to do something that they know is against their own conscience. The underlying goal is to build up one another spiritually and avoid tearing them down. Number two, personal restraint serves Christ. All right, we saw this. saw this in um, one of the verses here. Verse 18, For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God. This is how one of the ways that we serve Christ. That, that when we restrain from doing something that we know is right, actually serves Christ. Now, now doing that can be annoying and a little bit of a... Um, it, it can be a little bit of a, a challenge for us, right? We can't do something that we, we otherwise could do. But can I encourage you this morning that if spiritual growth in your brother is advanced because you had to endure a small personal annoyance because you couldn't engage in something that you know, knew was, was right according to your conscience, is that really too much to ask in light of what Christ has done for you regarding His elimination of the penalty of our sin? Can we not refrain from engaging in something that we have the right to do so that we can build up the spiritual life of a brother? That's one of the ways that we serve Christ. Personal restraint from our convictions honors God. Personal restraint honors God. So we need to ask ourselves, I think, does my acting out of my personal conviction lead to righteousness and peace and truth in the life of the church? Or is it going to be something that causes division in the church? Because there are some who don't see things the way that I do. 
It's one of the ways that we honor God. And then finally, personal restraint helps you. In Luke 17, Jesus talked about stumbling blocks. Do you remember what he said? He said, stumbling blocks will inevitably come, right? But woe to, to, whom, to, to the one through whom they come. And we better for the stumbling block placer to have a millstone tied around his neck and to be thrown in the middle of Lake Erie than for him to cause a little one to stumble. Now, I believe in that case, in Luke 17, Jesus was talking about stumbling blocks for little children that led to final unbelief and condemnation. That is, that they start believing in Christ, but something doesn't look right because of the stumbling block that we put in the way, and then as a result, they turn away from the faith and they never actually believe. Not a loss of salvation. I don't think the Scriptures allow that based on John 10 and Romans 8. But here in Romans 14, we're not talking about that kind of stumbling block that leads to eternal condemnation. Instead, we're talking about a stumbling block that leads to some kind of spiritual damage or destruction. Something that sets a believer back from his progress in the faith. But I think the principle still stands. That one day we're going to stand before Christ at the judgment seat. All believers will. We will have to give an answer for everything that we've done in this life, whether good or or evil. And if you're carefully handling yourself in the, context, in the context of this church, then one of the things that you need to do is to watch out for what might cause offense or might cause stumbling for another believer because then you will help yourself on the judgment day. Let me conclude with an exhortation for the weak believer. You might be thinking through this whole time, well, you know, I... I have these convictions, other people have theirs, and and they just keep acting on theirs, and and it's always causing trouble for me. Number one, for for the weak believer, don't let someone else cause you to defy your conscience. And say that for the strong believer as well. Don't let someone else force you to do something that you know your conscience doesn't allow. And then secondly, take responsibility for your own sin. You know, as a weak believer, it might be easy just to say, well, it's all their fault. You know, they're not considering me. Don't blame your sin on the strong. Let God do that. God lays levels of blame, right? He did it in the garden, right? When, when Adam and Eve sinned, that Adam received some blame for his wife's actions and, and Satan received some blame for it as well. And, and so God does the same thing, I think, for us. And, he, and Christ will do that at the judgment seat. We're going to have to give an answer for it. Don't pass the blame on to someone else. Let God do that at the judgment day. You might, as a weak believer, might want the strong to stop doing all kinds of things. But, but I would suggest to you to stay in your lane. Each one of us needs to stay in our lane and not cause damage to other believers or force that person to do something or blame something on them. Take responsibility for our own actions and, and live in a way that would honor Christ. The bottom line is that we all serve the same Christ. And we do it within the context of this local church by living with other believers who have differing convictions. And if we're going to be a church that is shaped by grace, then we will show brotherly love in harmony despite disputed differences. Would you pray with me?
Father, we're thankful for the mercy of Jesus Christ. He could have engaged, certainly, in many activities that he knew was, were right, but, but Lord, he, he came and, and he took upon himself the penalty of our sin, keeping in mind the consciences of other people, bringing about a new law and confirming it with um, his own mouth and with the message from the angels and with miracles. And now for centuries we have enjoyed the blessings of the gospel and of living a life that is pleasing to you. And, and Lord, we want to continue to do that. And Lord, some of these things that we've looked at this morning, we haven't really given much thought to, we must admit. We tend to be individualistic in our American society and don't often give thought to how our actions affect other people. We often work for the sake of our own benefit and, and Lord, ashamedly, I would suggest that we do that same thing within the body of this um, believers, this, this group of believers. And so, Lord, we ask for your forgiveness and ask for your help as we consider the kind of implications that would change the way that we live and think about one another and about how we can serve Christ and honor you with our uh, engaging and expressing of personal liberties or restraining from them. Lord, help us to live ultimately with a view towards peace and love and righteousness and joy. And may your body uh, in this place be, be built up in the most holy faith, together being strengthened in the inner man towards corporate holiness so that we are a bride made ready for Christ on, on the day in which the, the marriage supper of the Lamb will take place. Lord, we... We long for that day and ask for our Savior to come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.